When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. A message from the foreman. One hour to press. You're fired. Really? Don't cry in my office. The deadpan comic timing, Bill Murray, the music. It's got to be the new Wes Anderson. Hallelujah. Anderson's The French Dispatch opened in limited release last week. It expands to more theaters this weekend. Stop the presses. We've got a review. And it's an Anderson double feature this week as we revisit our 2017 Sacred Cow conversation about Rushmore. That and more. Don't cry during our review, Adam. No promises ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. I don't know, Josh, I guess my senses were so overloaded last week from seeing Harvey Keitel in a dress and lipstick that I just had to recover. We're going to take a week off from our Jane Campion Uber review. <laughs> Completely understandable. That, that one sticks with you. Yeah, it does. And the film, Holy Smoke, with Keitel and Kate Winslet sticks with you as well. A pretty good one that we enjoyed discussing last week. We will get back to our Campion Uber review next week with In the Cut from 2003, of course, starring Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo. Instead, we've got our 2017 Sacred Cow review of Wes Anderson's Rushmore. We will also share our updated Anderson-ranked lists. And Josh, you've put a lot of thought into your recommendation for introducing the Anderson uninitiated to the director's work, specifically for budding cinephiles. Yeah, more specifically, eighth graders. I think I really drilled down to the nitty gritty there, but hopefully other people will find that interesting as well. First, though, it's off to Ennui France for our review of The French Dispatch. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch, a factual weekly report on the subjects of world politics, the arts, high and low, and diverse stories of human interest. You don't think it's almost too seedy this time? No, I don't. For decent people. It's supposed to be charming. He assembled a team of the best expatriate journalists of his time. Berenson, Sazerac, Kremens, Roebuck Wright. These were his people. Just try to make it sound like you wrote it that way on purpose. 
Adam, I could deliver a straightforward, simple setup for our review of The French Dispatch, efficiently stating the facts that this is the 10th film from writer-director Wes Anderson, an anthology movie dramatizing a handful of the stories published in the fictional title magazine, a New Yorker-style American periodical headquartered in a quintessential French city. But I thought something different might better capture the experience of the film. Imagine the following as being narrated by Angelica Houston. It began as the setup to a review. The movie under consideration featured actors well-known to most audiences, having already established themselves by playing iconic characters, Marge Gunderson, Dr. Peter Venkman, and Paul Atreides. They and others agreed to be part of the large ensemble for the French Dispatch, playing writers and editors of various kinds, inspired by real-life scribes such as Janet Flanner, James Baldwin, and James Thurber. Here, an excerpt from a March 1955 Baldwin piece in Commentary Magazine entitled Equal in Paris. I had come to Paris originally with a little over $40 in my pockets, nothing in the bank, and no grasp whatever of the French language. It developed shortly that I had no grasp of the French character either. I considered the French an ancient, intelligent, and cultured race, which indeed they are. I did not know, however, that ancient glories imply, at least in the middle of the present century, fatigue, and quite probably paranoia, that there is a limit to the role of the intelligence in human affairs, and that no people come into possession of a culture without having paid a heavy price for it. End quote. Surely an early draft of that essay was written by Baldwin in a notebook, and notebooks are a common motif in the French dispatch. Indeed, the early draft of this setup was scribbled in a 48-page memo book, measuring three and a half inches by five and a half inches, available only from field notes located in Chicago, Illinois. If you start with the right notebook, 14% of your writing task is already finished. In another field notes memo book, jotted down while watching the French Dispatch at the Chicago press screening, this author wrote, among others, these words, Tati, Epiphany, Kidnapping by Comic Strip, A New Flavor. Other citations regarding the French Dispatch took place digitally. On the film spotting Slack at 9.45 a.m. on Sunday, October 24, Adam Kempinar wrote this regarding the planned episode pairing Anderson's movie with Jane Campion's In the Cut. Can we take In the Cut off and rerun Tenenbaum's Sick or Rushmore or whatever? At 9.50 a.m. on that same day, Sam Van Hogren responded, good idea. And we could do a quick Anderson ranked as part of segue into Rushmore. I wouldn't do Tenenbaum's because I'm on that one. This was a reference to his appearance on Film Spotting 589 for a Sacred Cow review of the Royal Tenenbaums and a discussion of the top five non-kids movies to show your kids. A rare instance in recent years of the stalwart Film Spotting producer returning to the mic. Notably absent from that Slack exchange was this author, whose Sunday was filled with a number of activities, including, appropriately, seeing the French Dispatch for a second time. At 10.32 a.m. on Monday, October 25, Sam posted this message in Slack. Josh. You okay with the plan Adam suggested for this week? Seg 1, French Dispatch. Seg 2, Rushmore Rerun. My response, logged at 10.33 a.m. that morning? Sure. And so, after a week of failure, betrayal, and disaster, we find ourselves about to review The French Dispatch, a movie as torturedly convoluted, fussed over, and potentially suffocating as this setup. I won't ask your opinion of what I've put together here, Adam. I'm shy about my new muscles but I do want to know if you found Anderson's movie to be, as many have claimed, far too clever for its own good and an example of the filmmaker's worst tendencies. Is this the picture that proves his detractors right? Or, you know, was it absolutely delightful? <laughs> well, first off, 
well done, though I'm now a little disappointed in hindsight that I misspelled Tenenbaums, even <laughs> even in a hurried Slack post. I knew that was going to be your takeaway from all this. Yeah. <laughs> I am now triggered for this entire review, and I think that was probably your goal. Well done on the setup. Appreciate the Andersonian effort there, Josh. I could hear the Depla. I could see the pastel colors, the square framing. It it was all vivid in my mind. But to answer your question, it can't be that movie because that movie already exists. It's called The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. <laughs> you think so? You know I think so. And I couldn't help but mention that even after revisiting that film last year, we talked about it for bonus content for our family members. I still couldn't get totally on board with that movie. I could get on board with The French Dispatch. I mean, I will say that I think your question is a little bit of a trick question because aren't all of his movies fussed over and busy and layered and to <sighs> not like extent, this though, not yeah, like to, this to whatever extent, I suppose they're, they're complicated or convoluted. We could probably debate where they all fall on that scale somewhere. But if you're suggesting that this is probably his most convoluted, I would agree with that. It's certainly his densest. I looked at Wikipedia earlier today just to make sure I had the right order and the names for the different stories that are told here. And I read a line that then made me think, wow, did I completely miss that? I mean, is it is it directly implied, indirectly implied, or not at all the case that the three main stories we see here are the ones that are going to be republished in the final farewell issue? That's because how I read it. It kind of made sense to me. And also I wondered if I, I just missed that completely. So you, you do have to really follow along and pay attention here, maybe more so than with any other Anderson film. You've got the use of these framing devices as well that complicate things, right? The, the whole story is framed by the tale of Arthur Howard, sort of the publisher, in his passing, he's played by Bill Murray. But then you've got frames within the different stories, right? You've got all these different storytellers and their different means of storytelling. They're writing stories ultimately for publication in the French Dispatch, but Tilda Swinton is presenting it. She's presenting her story as if she, you know, she's on a stage and she is speaking to an audience. The one featuring Francis McDormand, revisions to a manifesto. You've got a written piece, the manifesto, within this larger written piece. And then at the end, the last one featuring Jeffrey Wright, he's on a TV show retelling a narrative. So there is a nesting doll aspect here that, to some extent, we expect from Anderson, but definitely can be a little bit tricky to follow. I know for certain I overlooked details of the art direction and production design and of the characters themselves because I was trying to... Make sure I was I was tracking all of the characters and their escapades. Now, is that a failure of the movie, a failure of mine, or will we simply be rewarded on rewatch? I think it's the latter. And an element that really stood out to me watching this film, though surely it's been on display in his other films, I can definitely think of examples, is, you know, we focus on his almost obsessive attention to symmetry in his compositions and subjects are centered precisely. But here it was really the rhythm of his filmmaking, the the fluidity of it, a certain musicality to it that sometimes is often due to the music we're hearing. But I think it's really just in the movement and the balance of movement. And what I mean is that 
when his camera moves, his characters are often still, sometimes completely still. And when his characters move, the camera is often still. You think about the opening of Moonrise Kingdom and the introduction to all those characters in one place, sitting or standing, the camera's panning, the camera's zooming, or the camera's tracking, but they're, for the most part, stationary. Which isn't to say he never follows characters. We get POV shots with a steady cam or tracking shots like the Reveille at Camp Ivanhoe, also in Moonrise Kingdom. But I suppose despite any accusations of busyness or fussiness, I think where he's actually quite restrained is when it comes to action within a frame. Late in this movie, there's a point where he cuts to an overhead shot looking down a very large spiral staircase, a really winding staircase. And I think at some point we do see a character moving along it and the camera does move eventually, but I knew he was going to linger for several beats on that shot because it would be too much if he did otherwise. The staircase itself, just by its very design, the intricacy of its design feels like it's moving already. And it's those types of kind of subtle wonders and subtle choices in the filmmaking that I think make Anderson such a great filmmaker and make the French dispatch a movie. As I said, I can't wait to revisit. Yeah. As far as the camera goes, He's limiting himself in a lot of ways. I was surprised by how much of this treated the movie as if he were filming on a stage. You know, the camera would move within the frame occasionally, but, um, you know, only decisively, as you were describing, not frantically at all, as busy as this movie is. He's kind of um, limiting himself to the constraints of a single frame here. We have that boxy aspect ratio mm -hmm. again. And what's happening more often than not are the is the production design changing behind characters. That whole prologue sequence with Owen Wilson as the, the reporter on the bicycle, mm -hmm. um, usually he's fixed pretending to cycle and the the sets change behind him and it's that sort of stuff that that Anderson is playing with here that shows you that while this might at first glance seem like he's unrestrained and just going like over the top with his style in actuality there there's a lot of constriction going on mm -hmm. here a lot of limitations he's placed on himself and his collaborators and then seeing what they can create within that it, it really reminded me um, you know, why I kind of reacted when, when you said that about Life Aquatic is that um, this is, you know, as convoluted and layered as I would say the Grand Budapest is the next for me that is similar in this way. And really mm -hmm. the French Dispatch resembled more than anything else one of his stop motion efforts. Um, he's just got, you know, live action. He's got actors here instead of puppets. And we can get to, I know that's one of the critiques is you've got these great actors and you're just treating them like puppets. Well, in a way that's true. They, they are these figures in these elaborately constructed frames and we even get that whole sequence of literal traditional animation mm -hmm. right that's done in the style of uh, the adventures of tintin the belgian comic strip so um i obviously was all on board for this but i will recognize that it is going to try the patience of not only outright anderson skeptics who i think are going to throw it over their shoulder immediately but even those who generally appreciate him this is a difficult film to take in on a first mm -hmm. watch and it made me wonder, you know, if we'd be better off thinking about his movies and maybe the movies of other, other filmmakers as uh, albums. You know, remember when we used to have albums, Adam, and you would you would <laughs> never do. think about 
sitting down with an album from your favorite band, brand new album you've been anticipating, sitting down and listening to it for 45 minutes, an hour, whatever, putting it on the shelf and saying, I've appreciated everything there is to know about that album. I've heard everything I need to hear. Mm -hmm. I have a firm opinion. We just don't think about music that way, right? Um, It takes revisits, multiple listens. um, And maybe that's what we got to do with Anderson films. We should probably do it with all films, to be honest with you. I often feel terrible about getting out of a movie that's challenged me and saying, I have to come up with a decisive opinion on this when I've given it two hours mm-hmm. and the people making it have given it a year of their lives. And I think that's particularly true when it comes to Anderson. That's not an excuse. That's not to say that those who are exhausted by this movie aren't legitimate in their feelings. Um, but I do think it's going to be the one that tries the patience. I mean, my first watch, I particularly got lost in the manifesto section, yeah. uh, trying to figure out. I mean, you talked about the layers of the Jeffrey Wright section, but how about that manifesto one where we digress to a stage play recreating the experience of a character who has maybe four lines in the entire movie? Right. I mean, we are so burrowed yeah. below the layers at that point. But here's the defense. That stage sequence might be one of the most memorable in the film Mm -hmm. in terms of combining, and now maybe we can move to some of the sort of ideas and thematics of this movie, combining what Anderson has always, I think, kind of explored very gingerly and carefully, um, despair and um, what it can bring, the places it can bring a person to, and also the things that can bring a person back from the brink. Now, in that stage production we see, we find we watch a person giving into that despair, and I found it to be incredibly moving, even though it was a fictional times two, I believe, representation of a character mm-hmm. we met in the movie. To me, it was incredibly moving and effective, expressing the same things that um, we see the Benicio del Toro character struggle with. Um, depression in the painting sequence and how he... Um, is met with that. I think this is a recurring theme. It really struck me, you know, how much that is a recurring theme of Anderson's work is, is depression or anxiety in particular and despair. And as I said, the things that can bring people back mm-hmm. from the brink, I think that's kind of a through line in this movie. Um, even if, you know, it may be something that's hard to grasp onto because we are jumping around so quickly. It's actually a perfect transition into what I wanted to talk about next is you speak about a part that I agree with you is very memorable, though, as I was taking my notes, it was not top of mind at all. The play segment that you found so moving, there is something about this film that I think is melancholy. And despite that note of despair is delightfully so. And I'm going to go back to what you were saying about the album analogy you were making, because I'm not sure that as we listen to or still listen to records except for the rare concept album perhaps i don't think we ever put too much emphasis on the ending of an album what the last track is and what that says about the overall arc or narrative of the album but this movie in particular josh made me think about how much maybe this is the wrong way to phrase it but how much we take for granted endings of movies here on this show. And what I mean is, of course, we're always trying to dance around spoilers and Mm -hmm. not ruin anything for anyone. So we tend to not get into any of those details. And I will say right here that I promise you, if you're starting to get a little scared and you think I'm going to ruin the French dispatch, I won't do it. 
I promise I won't, though I'm not sure how much I could spoil when the movie, as I noted earlier, is framed by the device of the publisher dying. So that's how it begins. That's really how it ends. But generally speaking, of course, there are movies with surprise endings or twists. And so processing those endings, not even in a review setting as a critic, just as a viewer experiencing it is crucial. But as we've noted, the French Dispatch is all about storytelling and storytellers. And I don't know any storyteller that takes an ending lightly, whether we're talking about a film or a novel or a novella or an article or an essay. Can it ruin a great movie? Can an ending make a bad movie great? I'd probably say no to both. A bad ending could certainly diminish a movie, and a good one can enhance it. It's another discussion for another time, another show perhaps. But in the context of this film, I actually felt like the whole endeavor came into focus for me because of one exchange near the end of this film. Mm, One line. I know where you're going. One line at the conclusion of the final story. And no, not in a Shyamalan way where some part of the plot finally makes sense because of a reveal. No, the journey of watching these stories unfold and the reason why we set off on such journeys at all as artists and as audience, it crystallized for me in that moment. And it really struck me as, as quite profound. And, and I forgave, if that's even the right word, all those sidetracks and diversions and digressions, as you said. I don't know that Anderson intended for it to be that kind of true meta moment. But that's how I how I felt it. It was as if one character was expressing about another character's story what Anderson himself was saying about his story. And I think what maybe this movie seems to lack in all of those diversions and the little details and intricacies and the whimsy is that emotional resonance. I could see someone making that accusation against this film, that it doesn't have those moving moments that a Grand Budapest has, that a Moonrise Kingdom has, that Tenenbaums has. I mean, there's still, for me, maybe no more moving line in any Anderson film than I've had a rough year, Dad. Hmm. Isle of Dogs. We can go through all of these films, I think, and pick out those moments. Rushmore, of course, as well. Yeah, but the detail that is imparted, that prompts the line I'm referring to, is maybe one of the most sad and beautiful thoughts expressed in any Wes Anderson film. So with the French dispatch, it may take a little longer to get there. It may not hit with quite the same force of the more explicitly emotional parts of other Anderson stories, but, but it's there and it certainly justifies reevaluating the film and wanting to relive the journey, I think. And can we give, if I'm following you correctly, can we give someone else credit for this happening beyond Anderson and just say, it's Jeffrey Wright. Yeah. It's Jeffrey Wright and it's and it's Bill Murray. And yeah. you are right. They are they are collaborators in making this happen for sure. And I and I say that specifically because I will admit that, as happened with me with Grand Budapest, even though Ray Fiennes gives one of my favorite Wes Anderson performances in that movie, um, the similar layer cake structure there does keep me at a bit of a distance with some of the characters in that film. Um, you know, just just a bit in a way that I experienced here. Until Jeffrey Wright shows up in that last uh, story as Roebuck Wright and, you know, modeled clearly after James Baldwin and and what 
he has a lot of narrative hoops to jump through. This is why I was so impressed by his performance. As you said, we see him as an older man being interviewed on television about his career. At this point, he's a literary celebrity. Um, and he holds court there as we've seen, you know, Baldwin do in footage, yeah. historical footage, um, with his own his own touch. He's not doing an impression, um, but he holds court and captivates us there. But then he has a chance in recounting the French dispatch story that he's asked about um, to show up as the younger man from that time. Um, and actually, a younger man twice, if I'm thinking about it now, right? He recounts the story he reported where he's at a certain age. And then within that story, doesn't he recount the first time he meets Murray's character? Yeah, I think so. So he's playing the same mm-hmm. character at three different ages in this one short film um, and manages to give us different senses of that man and what he is facing and who he is as a writer and what his talents are and how they're going to come forth in this assignment in different ways in each segment. He just kind of burrows into this character mm-hmm. and gives us not only an experienced writer, but an emerging artist. And and he delivers a soliloquy at one point that I found, you know, uh, I think it's a little different than the moment you're thinking of, though I love that moment as well, but um, to be one of the most poignant moments that an Anderson film has offered also. So I think Wright manages to um, to kind of dig through, peel back all the layers that are being put upon him and, and jump to the fore as a, a full human being that I think a lot of people criticize Anderson's films as, I don't find this to be the case, but as not always happening. And I will tell you the other performance that stood out to me this way on the second viewing is Del Toro. Um, as this um, really, you know, tortured artist in a sense that we get a sense of his real mental struggle um, and this incarcerated artist and what the perfect face to choose for this. Del Toro Mm -hmm. is at once just like deeply pathetic in the sense that you feel for him and also so comical the way he just can scrunch up those wrinkles that he's got now. And it's just an expert bit of casting, not only for the talent that he has as an actor, but for that face. Think of all these sad sack faces we get in yeah. this movie in addition to all the others we've had in Anderson's film. So, so I do think, um, I do, I would say Anderson is definitely trying in a roundabout sort of repressed way, trying to get at these emotions mm-hmm. that you described. But I don't know that he would have gotten to them in this movie without uh, Benicio Del Toro and absolutely without Jeffrey Wright. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Said very well. And I will second your take on Jeffrey Wright and Del Toro being the standouts in this film. The whole ensemble is pretty wonderful, but I think that those two sequences in particular are the ones that most people will have linger with them. Definitely Roebuck Wright, especially as I said, when we when we get to the end, and for me it really all comes together, and then the concrete masterpiece about Del Toro's character, this artist in prison and his love affair with a guard and his muse, played by Lea Seydoux. I did see, I've seen it pop up since this movie first began being talked about. I saw this line attributed to Anderson, so I assume he said it somewhere along the way, which is that the movie's a love letter to journalists. And while that seems fairly obvious watching the film, don't you think the movie is actually more of a love letter, Josh, to everyone who makes the type of journeys I was speaking to happen? It's really a love letter to artists. Yeah, for sure. You've got Howitzer and his patronage. 
basically, of writers, right? Just completely giving in to whatever they want and making sure they feel coddled and safe to do what they do best. And you have the writers who know that they have the artistic license to tell whatever story they want to tell. And so much of this film feels appropriately Andersonian in that it's glorifying a time gone by. It's like him to glorify a time that not only is maybe past, maybe it never really existed, Josh. It actually only existed in one's imagination. It's it's fantasy. And I think that that element comes through here. Of course, the perhaps less charitable reading, if you're not an Anderson fan, is that this is really all just a tribute to himself. <laughs> you know, he's he's Howitzer. He gets to be the guy who brings this cast of characters together. And because of his brilliant mind, he gets to let them do what they do best. And then at the same time, isn't he also kind of Berenson and Roebuck Wright and Sazerac and Kremens? He he envisions these types of characters and he approaches stories in the same, I was going to say almost reckless way that they do. He's the guy who gets to make the movies that he wants to make. How many filmmakers actually even get to do that anymore? And then I'd switch back and say the more charitable way of looking at it is that if he is trying to reflect on himself at all or say something personal, maybe it's actually him expressing his gratitude for having that ability. I think both of those descriptions are right. And the one that, you know, some might construe as negative, I would paint in a more positive light. Uh, to your point about, you know, is this about the creative life? Absolutely. That's what I think both the exuberance and maybe the loneliness of the creative mm -hmm. life. And he's giving us the particular setting of the writing life, which I absolutely, you know, I absolutely loved all those little details that he rooted it there. But yeah, to those options you just presented, I think, you know, maybe more than any of his movies, this one seems to be to be about the process. And this comes back a little bit to this idea I was talking about where what brings people away from the brink of that uh, despair or depression. And you see these writers, they are sad characters, but when they're working on their projects, that is what gives them life. Yeah. Um, that is when um, there, there's a beautiful recurring motif of black and white going to color. Yes. And I cannot wait to watch it a third time where I'm just going to sit down and take notes about every time that happens because it is such a, a visualization of this sort of epiphany that the characters and sometimes the writers have. And it reflects this idea of this, this is why I'm here to do this. And the resulting story is really not so much the point. I mean, think about Roebuck Wright and that conversation with Howitzer where he's done with the story. He's not quite as so attached. Like, should something be added back in? Okay, what? You know, they go back and forth. But it has been the process for him. Same mm -hmm. with the Frances McDormand character. The last time we see her typing away, she just points to the finished manuscript on the chair. She's done with that story. She's on to her next one because for her, it was all about the creative process that gave her life. And I think this movie, we've talked about how some very moving things that it might be quote unquote about. But I don't know that it's about what it's about. It's It seems to be about the experience of making it, of having gathered these people to somehow create these insanely busy, intricate frames and characters and narratives and just pull it off. And yeah. now it's out there 
you like to think about they're all they're all on to the next thing. That's um, right. You know what this reminded me of actually? I've been listening to the Team Deacons podcast, which is something that great cinematographer Roger Deacons and his partner James Deacons they started, I think during the pandemic, just interviewing collaborators who they've worked with, production designers, sound designers, other cinematographers, many of whom have worked on Coen Brothers films. And what I've learned from that is something that's obvious to anyone who's ever been involved in filmmaking, I'm sure, is how much for these people, it is just the process, how much it is just getting together, solving problems creatively, telling a person's story and coming alongside them to help them do that, and that they can just kind of release that at the end. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are sometimes regrets and they talk about some of those, but but they're excited about the next project, which mm-hmm. is just kind of affirmed. The French Dispatch affirmed that to me. You know, I can see this movie particularly being a case. It's not about one particular story, one particular character. It seems to be about having gathered with these people and spent the time doing this. And now, all right, you guys can watch it too. Yeah. You mentioned the switching between black and white and color. And there are some really nice touches there with that, though that's also one of the aspects that maybe confusing isn't the right word, but that make the movie a little complicated to follow, just that you're paying attention to things like that. Oh, what was that choice? Why did we go to black and white there? Why the decision to go back to color there? And that all said, there was a moment in the film, I was able to take Holden and Sophie to this movie with me, which was great because Holden was home for the weekend from college because both Sophie and Quinn, two of his siblings, were in their school plays. And he came back to watch those. And then it just worked out that the people I watched Wes Anderson's filmography with rewatched it this past year. They were able to go watch his new one with me. And there's a sequence at the end. It's the Roebuck Wright story. And I think it's a moment with Saoirse Ronan and a little boy. And I may get it backwards, but I think it's in color. And then she looks through a hole in a door to look at him. And she's now in black and white. It's and it's, ba- comes it's back backwards. In color. It's actually the other it's way her around. Blue right? eyes. Because you see her blue eyes. Yes. Yep. It totally, it came back to me as I was saying it. You definitely see those blue eyes. So it's black and white. And then she goes into color and back to black and white. And Holden just says to me, well, that was lovely. <laughs> and exactly. it was. It really <laughs> was. It. Yeah. It was really lovely. And I will throw this out there as well. I'm not sure anyone's asking this question, but if maybe you were wondering, am I going to enjoy this movie? Are my kids maybe going to enjoy this movie if they have no real point of reference for The New Yorker? I would say not to worry about it because I don't think The French Dispatch is probably super high on Holden and Sophie's Anderson ranked list, but they did enjoy it. They did go for it. And they've never read even a single article in the New Yorker in their lives. They didn't know any of that. When the list came up the end and said, you know, this is a tribute to or in honor of writers like this. And, and anyone who knows recognizes that some of the characters are versions of those real life writers that didn't mean anything to my kids. So I suppose you can blame me on one hand for not making them more sophisticated while on the other hand, they do like Wes Anderson movies. So I can't be a total failure. But they don't know The New Yorker at all, and I don't know it the way, for example, our producer Sam does, who reads every single edition front to back and has since he was, I think, just out of college. And I don't think that really matters. It might add an extra layer of enjoyment. It might add a few more jokes here and there. But otherwise, it really is totally secondary, I think, to the experience. Yeah, I don't think that's a barrier to entry at all. I would say, um, you know, 
if you're thinking of bringing someone to Anderson for the first time, this is the deep end. I would not start here. <laughs> that would be the one limitation I would definitely say. But we'll mm-hmm. get into that maybe a little bit more when we talk uh, about a suggested viewing order of his films. We will indeed. If you see The French Dispatch and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Wes Anderson's Rushmore, spoiler, still sits atop my Anderson ranked list. We'll discuss our rankings and revisit our 2017 Sacred Cow review of Rushmore next. Plus, results of the film spotting poll asking about the best movie soundtrack of the last decade. Stay with us. Room is on the top floor. It's perfect. I love it. If I could live any place in any time, I'd live here in London in the sixties. Thomas and McKinsey there in the trailer for Last Night in Soho, the latest from director Edgar Wright, his first film since 2017's Baby Driver, the genre-bending Last Night in Soho, a time-travel mystery thriller, also stars Anya Taylor-Joy. It comes to theaters this weekend, and Josh, we're going to get to that on next week's show. Just came out of that a few hours ago, Adam, and Hmm. I'll say this for now, great soundtrack, We will talk more about great soundtracks in a second, and that sounds a fairly ominous note for next week's discussion. Along with Mackenzie in that Last Night in Soho trailer, you heard music from The Kinks, Starstruck, from the band's 1968 album, The Kinks Are the Village Green Preservation Society. Edgar Wright is definitely one of those directors you always count on to make memorable use of music in their movies, and Soho... Well, it looks to be no exception. You are vouching for that, Josh, that mm-hmm. it is no exception. It was Wright who inspired the current film spotting poll. We asked you, what is the best movie soundtrack, soundtrack, not score, of the last decade? And I'm glad we did focus on the last decade because not only would opening it up make the question even more problematic and deeply flawed, but then you really would have had to bring in the person we were just talking about, Wes Anderson. I mean... Which soundtrack is better in a Wes Anderson film? Rushmore? Royal Tenenbaums? Oh, man. Yeah, that's hard. That's really tough. tough. I'm not even going to answer it Yeah, and you don't have to because, again, we focused on the 2010s and we gave you these options. Edgar Wright's Baby Driver. Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. The Coen Brothers' Inside Lewin Davis. Lover's Rock from Steve McQueen. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino. Another Edgar Wright, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You could go John Carney and Sing Street, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, or if you didn't like any of those choices, you could go other. How did it come out, Josh? Well, Black Panther and Spider-Verse took the bottom two slots, 3% and 5%. This is a poll where other jumped up a bit. 
with 6% of the vote. So some folks had other choices. We'll probably hear a few of those in the comments. John Carney's Sing Street got 8% of the vote. Rights to films, the two options here, back-to-back in the poll. Scott Pilgrim with 9% of the vote, Baby Driver with 10% of the vote. My pick, Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock, received 10% of the vote as well. Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood got 11% of the vote. Up at the top, pretty close here, Guardians of the Galaxy with 18%. And surprising no one who has ever seen the Coen brothers participate in a film spotting poll. Right. They took it. Inside Lewin Davis got 21%. Franco Esmail says, oof. I saw Lovers Rock and went, yep, that wins easily. Then saw Inside Lewin Davis right above it and audibly gasped, aw, man. Here's Andrew Howell. I'm hooked on a feeling, and I want you back right after I fooled around and fell in love. Hope you can escape the pina colada song, the cherry bomb, because, oh, child, there ain't no mountain high enough. Wait, did I just have a Moon Age daydream? It's Guardians killing it with a near sequel to K. Billy's Super Songs of the 70s. Well played, Andrew. James Campbell says, Baby Driver is such a kick-ass soundtrack. I could feel my 70-year-old heart feel like it was 25 again. I can understand votes for the others, but Baby Driver moved me like no other on the list. Keenan Collett is weighing in from London. If you want a kicking collection of well-known tracks set with gusto to images, I can't blame you. It's invigorating and gets the blood pumping. And Baby Driver is a quintessential example. But I'd rather a film do so with music I've never heard before. Tracks that capture you and linger afterwards. So I'm going for Lover's Rock. Steve McQueen isn't just showing you a community that has so often been elided from cinema. He wants to achieve that with the music, too. And the soundtrack is an absolute banger that taught me so much. Well, I think you voted for Lover's Rock, Josh, and you're certainly not going to get an argument from either of us when you think back to last year and our conversation about Lover's Rock, top 10 films of the year, our rap party where we share our favorite scenes of the year. A lot of love for Lover's Rock and specifically those music choices. Stephen Hill says there were at least six options on the list I could have gone with, but I went with Sing Street. Why? Because no other soundtrack draws the through lines between inspiration and and end result the way that Sing Street does. It does help that I grew up with a lot of the music in Sing Street, and while I didn't have to deal with the headaches of Irish public schools and uniforms, a lot of the starting a band as a teen rings true. A great album. Just kissing up to Adam there, Stephen. Here's TJ Dwayne. Only one of these soundtracks makes you want to drive around with the windows down, and it's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, complete with the radio ads. It's the ultimate vibe playlist of the listed options which also provides the DNA for the film it was compiled for. It has to be hot. Little girl, D. Clark, 349 at KHJ. I'm the real show. What do you say? You want to be the prettiest, sunniest blonde in town? Well, of course you do. Well, you listen to this now. Maybe not a surprise here, but Reservoir Dogs was one of the first soundtracks I remember owning and listening to all the time like Edgar Wright, like Wes Anderson. You can never really go wrong with a Tarantino film. Lucy says, I love all the choices, but it's into the Spider-Verse for me. It's different, raw, moving, unique, and totally captures a milestone of superhero movie making when it was turned upside down, shaken around, and bettered by this brilliant movie. I also have to thank my kids for getting me into this. Many of the tunes played over and over in our house. Ruben says, All the Stars by Kendrick Lamar is Black Panther captured in a song. Every emotion, exhilaration, melancholy, everything. When I hear it over the end credits, well, let's say it gets dusty in the room. Every time I see the movie, Black Panther it is. Okay, well, we said other did okay, third from the bottom. Sean Stanglin, he's he's really going other. Call it recency bias, 
But I cast a write-in vote for, I mean, who didn't cast a write-in vote for Cruella? Oh, boy. Not only a perfectly curated playlist, but a movie that a lot of kids will see. And hopefully the soundtrack steers some youngsters to rock and roll. I know that our producer, Sam, now has an alias, and it's Sean Stenglin. He's the only (laughs) Cruella fan I know. Oh, gosh. Those needle drops. Uh, Painful in Cruella. I am so sorry, Sean, but it's true. Callum, hello from the UK here. Callum says, I guess there was only room for one car-based heist movie in your list, or did you just forget Drive? Shame on you all. From Kavinsky's Night Call to the Chromatics Tick of the Clock, with a film so dialogue-free, the moody, sultry soundtrack became its own character and is definitely my pick for the decade's best. Hmm. It says here in our notes that it also gets Sam's vote, though I will have to ask Sam whether or not he thought of it on his own or if Callum jogged his memory. Fine either way. Just curious if Drive was really that top of mind for Sam. If it was, it would warm my heart because... I kind of adore that film. Isabel Bishop closes us out. She says, all of these soundtracks are amazing, but I have to go other and write in Boyhood. Good choice. I was 14 when I saw that movie, and the soundtrack quickly became the soundtrack for the next four years I spent in high school. It introduced me to countless artists, many of whom I now call my favorites, and basically formed much of my taste in music. So I am forever grateful for this beautiful soundtrack. Thank you to everyone who voted. Thank you to everyone who left a comment. And that brings us to our latest deeply flawed film spotting poll. I love questions like this that are based off of film spotting. We get to pretend that we're actually more significant than we really are. Marvel's Eternals comes to theaters next weekend, directed, of course, by Chloe Zhao, winner of last year's Best Directing Oscar for Nomadland. The embargo for critics is already lifted, so reviews are out there, and I've been seeing a few things pop up on Twitter, Josh. I don't know if Mixed Bag is actually doing it justice. It seems like there are a lot of detractors. Have you seen it yet? I have not seen it and have been trying to avoid those responses. But from what I saw before I could look away, yeah, I would say I would say largely negative. Uh, but that may be just who I follow. So we'll yeah. see when we get a look at it. We will get to our Eternals review in a couple of weeks. But everyone knows this. I mean, it it paved the runway. Before Zhao was an Oscar winner, she was a film spotting golden brick nominee. The Golden Brick is our Overlooked Film of the Year award, and it usually goes to a new or emerging director. Zhao's The Writer was the runner-up, very close runner-up to Bing Lewin, minding the gap for our 2017 Brick Award. And there have been other Brick nominees who have gone on to direct for Marvel. Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, directors of Captain Marvel, they were nominees back in 2010 for It's Kind of a Funny Story. Ryan Coogler was a shortlister for 2013's Fruitvale Station. Destin Daniel Cretton, director of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, was a nominee for Short Term 12 in 2013. And Taika Waititi was a 2014 nominee for What We Do in the Shadows. Basically, what we're saying is, why aren't we getting some of that sweet, sweet Marvel cash for identifying all of their talent, Josh? I mean, really, there should be some sort of cut sent our way, don't you think? Yeah, I do. Our question then this week is, which brick-anointed director is Marvel going to poach next? Well, that's a variation on it anyway. The scenario is the director of an upcoming MCU film will be a recent winner of the Golden Brick Award. Who should it be? And for options, we're giving you the winners of the last five Brick Awards, Josh. They are. Darius Martyr. He won for The Sound of Metal. Joe Talbot. The Last Black Man in San Francisco was Joe's film. Koganata made The Great Columbus. Anna Rose Homer, director of The Fits, and Bing Liu. Minding the gap. I thought I knew 
how I was going to vote in this poll. And then Sam gave us this laundry list of things to consider. And my head is now totally messed up. Do you just go with your favorite of these films? You could. Do you consider the relative strengths of these filmmakers and how they might be employed in the service of a Marvel movie? That that seems like a lot of work. Do you vote for your <laughs> least favorite, saving the others and letting them work on projects that are not Marvel related? Mm. I, I might I might be down with that. Also, how does it change things if the director gets paired with the star or stars of his slash her brick winning film for the Marvel job? I love this wrinkle. Oh, so wow. you got Martyr with Riz Ahmed. You've got Talbot with Jimmy Fails and Jonathan Majors. Koganada gets to bring back John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. Anna Rose Homer with Royalty Hightower and Bing Lou, I don't know, with with skateboards. He could do the Silver Surfer movie, which I don't think is Marvel, but you, whatever. You just Play got along. yourself into all sorts of trouble with that comment, Adam. I'm, you got to be careful I'm, with these sorts I'm of things. Gonna, I'm going to Google it. Silver Surfer, bad it's, guy, it's bad a guy in the Fantastic Four. So I think it is Marvel. Yeah, and he rides a skateboard. You got that right. So, yeah, Marvel Comics. Don't send me the hate mail. I know what I'm talking about. I don't want to answer this. It's close enough to a skateboard. Sure. I mean, this and this is as we said, we have not seen Eternals yet, so this isn't like any sort of bad taste response. But I, I, I think I passed the point where I was excited to see talented, idiosyncratic directors getting a shot at a big movie, and now I'm just kind of like. Uh, just stay out of it. I'm more, but that I don't want to take the tact of you know who do I want to kind of feed to the wolves here either. Right. That doesn't seem fair. Do you tell me who your first guess was? It sounds like you had an instinctual response. Yeah, I had an instinctual response, and it might be because I think it's my favorite of all of those films. You could say that it meets that criterion. It also answers the other question about whether or not it changes things if you pair the director with the actors. And that's Koganata. John Cho, Haley Lou Richardson in a Marvel film. I'm down with that. I'm down with seeing them in any film. And Koganata, not unlike Zhao, just strikes me as one of those filmmakers with such a clear, distinct vision, even if I'm only going off of that one film. And I talked to him about this when he came on the show and I interviewed him. I don't know what his filmmaking approach is going to be to his next film after Yang, I think is that the name of the movie Sounds we've been right. anticipating for a few years now. We'll see whether or not he employs a radically different style or whether or not his approach to framing and, and compositions will be similar as it was in Columbus. That said, I think maybe he's got the most distinct visual style of these filmmakers. And I am going to always hope for talented visionary filmmakers to be making commercial enterprises i suppose if anyone has to make them i'd rather see filmmakers like koganata try it yeah and that that's kind of where i'd been for for a while i just can't picture koganata's mcu film um maybe i'm gonna go and this is not a slight with the person whose i could picture and i could actually see darius martyr based on the sound of metal pulling it off riz ahmed could totally do justice to a good Marvel point. part and do a really good job with it. Um, but I think Martyr would come away the least damaged. Let me put it that way and and make his money and go on to do some maybe some stuff that he's a little more personally invested in. So that might be my vote. Yeah, it's a good choice. Anna Rose Homer, too. I mean, the Fitz is kind of about a girl who seems like she has superpowers. Yeah, good point. She definitely, she definitely doesn't fit in as most superheroes, at least in their real lives, do not. So I'd see that movie. I'd see 
any of the Marvel movies those filmmakers make. We want to know what you think, who gets your vote, and why. Leave us a comment. Let us know where you're listening from. If you do, vote at filmspotting.net. So last week, we had five Blu-ray copies of M. Night Shyamalan's Old to give away. Old is available right now on 4K, UHD, and Blu-ray, as well as digital. For a chance to win, we asked listeners just to send us an email, and then in the body, tell us their favorite performance in an M. Night Shyamalan movie. So we do have our five winners here, as well as their picks. We'll start with Jared R. in Springfield, Missouri. Jared went with the choice, I think, this is where my head immediately went as well. Haley Joel Osment from The Sixth Sense. Simple, sweet, tough to disagree with Jared. Sean Guerrero says his favorite performance in a Shyamalan-directed movie is Haley Joel Osment's co-star. It's Bruce Willis in The Sixth Sense. I've found that his mournful performance has really held up over the years and is quite different from other roles he has taken. It's a measured and understated performance that leaves me quite impressed. Our third winner is Danny Cox. There's the obvious choices of Haley Joel Osment and Tony Collette from Sixth Sense, James McAvoy in Split slash Glass, and I'd even throw Vicky Creeps in Old up there. But I'll shout out someone from Shyamalan's worst film, The Last Airbender. Most of the cast falters, largely due in part to a poor adaptation of the material. But for what it's worth, Dev Patel does what he can with the material. In his first role post-Slumdog Millionaire, he does all he can to capture the angst, frustrations, and trauma of the Prince Zuko from the original Avatar The Last Airbender TV show. Had the film not misguidedly tried to cram an entire season of television into 90 minutes, I feel Patel could have really shined. Okay, we're going to reward Danny and Stephen Farrell here for their off-the-beaten-path choices. Now, I feel like my pick might be seen as a little bit of a contrarian selection or that I'm being goofy, but I'm going to go with Rosie O'Donnell in Wide Awake. I feel like it is often the lost movie in Shyamalan's filmography, but it has the writer-director establishing defining characteristics of his future work. Him often having children being central to his stories, his wrestling with the big theme of faith, and of course his ongoing affection for Philadelphia. Now, I haven't seen it since I was a kid on VHS, but I can only assume that Rosie's portrayal of a nun isn't terrible, and therefore, <laughs> it's the best. I know this is all a bit of a stretch, but I'm sticking with it. That's Steven. Wide Awake, a Shyamalan movie I still haven't seen, so I suppose I cannot claim to be a completist when it comes to Shyamalan. Wide Awake, have you seen it, Josh? It wasn't The Sixth Sense that was his debut. Right, yeah. This film. I saw it, um, and I'll just say it was a long time ago. Rosie O'Donnell's performance did not stick with me as much as it did Steven, but I do believe he's he's using the Oscars uh, rules for how they determine their winners, right? Isn't terrible. Therefore, it's the best. <laughs> the best. Okay. <laughs> All right. Our last winner, Darren Gunn, who identifies himself as pro-old, by the way, tempted to vote Joaquin Phoenix in Signs, just a very funny, lived-in performance, but I'll go with Tony Collette in The Sixth Sense. The movie is a masterpiece because of its emotional core, and Collette is heartbreaking as the mother struggling to protect and understand her son. Thank you, Darren. Thank you to all of our winners and everyone who participated in this contest. I do think that from now on, every film spotting listener has to include in parentheses pro or anti old. Why not? <laughs> it's the, let's just, it's really let's just the identify only each thing, other. The only thing that matters to cinephiles, really. Yeah, I think so. Again, M. Night Shyamalan's Old is available now on 4K, UHD, and Blu ray and digital. Congrats one more time to our winners. Email feedback at filmspotting.net. Include your address, and we will get that Blu ray edition sent out to you. 
I want to give a quick note of thanks to those who showed up for the TC Movie Club last Friday night. Uh, this is something I'm doing over for the day job, thinkchristian.net. We had a couple of film spotting listeners show up there to discuss Fargo online. Isabel Bishop, who weighed in on our poll, just heard from her as well as Brett Fisher. Jonathan Anderson was there, maybe a couple of others, but thank you very much. This was our first installment uh, for this series. I'm basically making video essays, sending them out to people who join the club and kind of setting up the online discussions we'll have, all exploring theological themes in the Coen Brothers films. So that was a lot of fun. Can't wait to do our next one. It's going to be on Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? taking place November 19. So if you want to join us, if this is the first you're hearing of the event, you can do that at thinkchristian.net slash movie club. And if you want to check out those video essays I'm making on YouTube, just search for Think Christian. Over at our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they are celebrating their 300th episode with part one of their Just Deserts pairing. So they put together Dune, The New Dune, and Lawrence of Arabia. Naturally, part one is tackling Lawrence of Arabia, and I cannot wait to give this pairing a listen. Your next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of The Next Picture Show post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. Now, I haven't listened to these shows yet about sand. I'm sure they're riveting as all of their podcasts are, especially a big 300th episode. But I'm just going to say that maybe they shouldn't be allowed to do a 301, Josh, if someone hasn't already figured out that their next pairing should be Todd Haynes, The Velvet Underground documentary, and Todd Haynes, The Velvet Goldmine. I mean, I'm just here to help. I'm just here to help. I think I'm just going to... I imagine their selection process is a little more selective than than words that are similar. I'm, no, it, it's more. It's so much more than words, Josh. Obviously, Velvet <laughs> Goldmine was inspired by that name. Even is inspired by the band, the Velvet Underground. So, actually, I think it's a perfect pairing. Though I'm sure they've thought about it, and we'll have a good reason why maybe it's not. And that allows me to say very quickly that I did see the new documentary the velvet underground that played here at the chicago international film festival and it's fantastic it's it's a filmmaker and maybe this isn't a surprise with todd haynes who is trying to do something different with a documentary film trying to do something in the same artistic spirit of a band like the velvet underground and the the cumulative effect of it is to kind of put you in the same sort of trance that the band did with their live performances that the films and the art of Andy Warhol did. He plays a prominent role in the movie. So highly recommend it currently available now on Apple TV plus. We always talk about ways you can support film spotting. Well, one way you can support us is to patronize a great show like the next picture show. We want to keep them around for as long as possible doing what they do so well. And it would be great if you maybe have never listened to a show before for whatever reason and you just saw Dune, still processing it. Check out the Next Picture Show again, nextpictureshow.net. Another way you can support Film Spotting, though, is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. $5 a month gets you a slew of benefits, including our monthly bonus episodes. And this one will be available, Josh, by the time people hear this episode. So at this moment, not published, but. Sam's got it done. It's ready to go. And I think it will be a fun one for our listeners. Instead of talking about a movie, we're talking about my favorite subject, me, 
We're talking about us. It's really film spotting. I love talking about film spotting. And we got into questions from our family members like, who are our Desert Island directors? What were our favorite movies at different ages? That was a fun exercise to go back to 5, 10, 15. And then we spent a lot of time on how we prepare for the show, how we think about and approach our reviews. So if that all sounds appealing to you, you can get that bonus content by signing up to be a film spotting family member over on Patreon. And I think we're probably going to do something similar for November, right? So if listening to that spurs any questions you've ever had about what goes into putting the show together or something along these lines, send it in and we might take it up next month. Yeah, we just might. And you also get a chance as a family member to participate in our monthly trivia spotting events. Our next one is a Saturday matinee, two o'clock, November 6th. And we've got a great group of captains, some returning VIPs, some first timers as well. And I have been thinking about this, so we might as well do it now, Josh, opening it up a little bit to our everyday audience. Yes, it's a benefit for our family members, but if some tickets go unsold and maybe not surprisingly, as we're in a little bit of a post COVID world, people are getting back to jobs and lives and kids and all sorts of activities. We do have a few openings. I'd love to put together a wait list of film spotting listeners who have heard us talk about trivia and have always wanted to play email feedback at filmspotting.net. put wait list in the subject line. We'll get you on it. If there are extra tickets available we will let you know. Again, all of those benefits come to you as a film spotting family member over on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash film spotting to sign up. What's the secret, Max? The secret? I think you just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. That's from the trailer for Rushmore, Wes Anderson's sophomore effort and breakout indie hit. Back in April 2017, we gave the sacred cow treatment to Rushmore. The occasion, Josh, if I recall correctly, was your Ebert Interruptus screening of the film as part of the Conference on World Affairs in Boulder. You've done so many of those now. Lover's Rock, Wall-E, Mad Max, Fury Road. Was Rushmore the first? Yeah, it was. I mean, I was I was nervous. I wanted to, to lean into my strength, so <laughs> went it. with the Wes Anderson film. Before we get to our review, let's take a look at our Anderson-ranked list. Now that we've seen and reviewed The French Dispatch, we can call ourselves completists. We have seen all of Anderson's feature films. Rushmore, as we noted earlier, has long held the number one spot for you, Josh, and I'm guessing that has not changed in light of the French Dispatch. So let's hear how it stands. Yeah, Rushmore still is at number one. I just, I know, you know, maybe his his aesthetic became more polished in later films, but I still think that is maybe a perfect movie. Um, as many times as I see it, there there's like, maybe I'll hear a line that I think, oh, could have been read a little differently or something like that. But otherwise, I do just think it's a perfect movie. So it's going to take something uh, to knock... Rushmore out of the top spot. Should we go from there to where French Dispatch landed, or how do you want to do this? No, just run through them. Okay. So surprisingly to a lot of folks, um, to show you that I don't have this list etched in stone, when Isle of Dogs came out, it shot up to number two. And I've seen it a couple times since, Hmm. and I am just so confident in, um, again, the purity of the vision and um, how it actually 
comes out on the screen for that movie. I just love Isle of Dogs. I love stop motion animation. So it's kind of a perfect, um, you know, for those two things to come together, Wes Anderson stop motion, of course, I'm going to love it. And Royal Tenenbaums, I think a lot of people have this at number one. Also, one of his best. I think this is top tier. I'd say these four films, the first four are top tier for me. So you've got Rushmore, Isle Dogs, Royal Tenenbaums, and then Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, those are among his best. A little drop off here, number five, I have Life Aquatic, which I know you just don't understand. Adam, after that is Moonrise Kingdom, then The Grand Budapest, and here's where we get to the French Dispatch. I do think of these two films as similar in a lot of ways, Budapest and French Dispatch. Love them for very similar reasons, their intricacies, um, and I have them paired together. So the only two after French Dispatch right now are Bottle Rocket and then the Darjeeling Limited, which, you know, Darjeeling is a film I like, have actually come to like more and more over the years, but do have some questions about reservations even when I revisit it. Um, so that's why that would be in last place. But this is one of those lists, Adam. Um, you know, not a bad film to my mind among, on it. And, you mm-hmm. know, all movies I would happily watch again tomorrow. Okay. I made my list back in 2013. The list you will currently find if you search Letterbox, my Wes Anderson ranked, is from 2013. And it surprised me looking at it earlier today. I hadn't revisited it in a while. And it will probably surprise you a little bit as well, Josh. But it has evolved since then because at the time, I had only seen two of those movies more than once and recently. And those were the top two, not in this order, Rushmore and the Royal Tenenbaums. Everything else I'd only seen once. Of course, now, 2021, I did embark on a rewatch of his oeuvre with my kids during quarantine. So I rewatched every film except for one. And no, it's not his most recent or what was his most recent because we didn't go in order. I actually did a version of what we're going to talk about in a little bit. I did my own version of the order I think you should expose budding cinephiles to Wes Anderson's work. And I saved for the end, the Darjeeling limited. And as we sit, I know this probably just kills you, not because you love the movie, but because you can't believe I got all the way through all of Wes Anderson's films and then just left the Darjeeling limited hanging. But a year later, we still haven't watched that film. So only seen that one once my 2013 ranking though, Josh was this the Royal Tenenbaums. Rushmore, Moonrise Kingdom. Now, I know you'll appreciate this. You've got it very high, but I know you'll appreciate Isle of Dogs, fourth. I do love that. I think about that review quite often and how happy I was that you liked it just about as much as I did. Really good on rewatch, too. Here's where it gets a little trickier and a little bit more disappointing for you. At five, back in 2013, I had Bottle Rocket, followed by Fantastic Mr. Fox, then the Grand Budapest Hotel, then the Darjeeling Limited, then the Life Aquatic. Post-rewatch. So now my new official, man, I feel so much better about this Wes Anderson list. The ranking goes as follows. No changes to the top three spots. It's still the Royal Tenenbaums, followed by Rushmore and Moonrise Kingdom. But fourth, moving up from seven to fourth. And yes, I know there are a few of you out there who also don't get all of the hype about this movie and maybe saw me as the one voice of reason out there who was like grand Budapest. Eh, it's okay. Or it's a mixed bag. Nope. I've changed. I've gone to the other side, grand Budapest hotel, straight up top tier Wes Anderson. It's in fourth. 
That does mean, Josh, that Isle of Dogs got pushed back slightly to fifth, but that that top five for me is still pretty powerful. Okay. You'll also love this. Staying at number six, right behind that very high top tier, the fantastic Mr. Fox. Nice. Moved up in my estimation on rewatch, even if it stayed at number six. Then we get to the French Dispatch at seven, followed by Bottle Rocket, dropped in my estimation on rewatch. The Darjeeling Limited, without a second viewing, still in the ninth spot. And yeah, Life Aquatic, the one I still don't understand, Josh. (laughs) Even though in so many ways, it's obviously a better made film than Bottle Rocket. Sure. I've still got it. I've still got it at 10. My least favorite Wes Anderson film. It's there in the final spot. Yeah, and it's totally understandable. I think if if um, if you don't have it there, you've kind of lost your mind when it comes to Wes Anderson because it is, I often refer to it as the litmus test um, mm-hmm. for him. Is is That is going to test your patience maybe in different ways than something like French Dispatch does or Grand Budapest does. Um, so I totally, you know, I see a lot of folks who have the opinion of Life Aquatic that you do. For me, it's Murray. It's just the goofiness. It's the um, that climactic sequence in the submarine. You referenced mm-hmm. how um, can endings of movies yeah. or maybe climaxes of movies. Can um, a moment make it all make sense? It, that does it. That does it for me. That moment mm. is, Did have we done our top five Anderson moments? If we didn't, um, you know, we should get to it someday and that would be among it for me. Now we probably did and I didn't have it there. But <laughs> I think it was your number one probably, Josh. <laughs> okay. I'm pretty sure That's, it was. <laughs> all right, good. Yeah, I just, I mean, it makes that film. Um, but it's, I like to see Grand Budapest rising, not because it's among my favorites necessarily, though I think it's very good. I think that's a, a very um, telling example as it was a rewatch for you of my album theory where, you know, these are movies you've got to take another look at, sit with some more because it is layered like the French dispatch is in terms of its narrative. Think how, of how many layers we, until we get to the Ray Fiennes character, right? Um, you, you kind of got to cut that cake until you get into that central performance, which is so great. So that is one as well. That's always going to benefit from repeat viewings. Speaking of those top five Wes Anderson scenes that I thought we had done before, we did, except it was way back on episode 481 when we reviewed the Grand Budapest Hotel. So there's been, obviously, a handful of Wes Anderson films since then that would not have been eligible for that list. So one we should probably redo at some point. And where did I have uh, the Zissou moment? Well, I didn't get that far ahead, but I'll stall a little bit if you want to look for it, Josh. I am pretty sure it was your number one, though. All right. I will will see if I can bring it up. Your number one. So I'll help segue into our next Anderson-related topic, which is that ranking of the order you should watch Wes Anderson films in if you're trying to expose budding cinephiles to his work, or let's just say our children to his work. And I do love your title because it seems like a subtitle to a Wes Anderson movie, which was probably by design. This is suggested order of a Wes Anderson marathon for an eighth grader who has seen his animated films and is looking forward to the French dispatch. (laughs) There he goes. Very very specific audience. (laughs) You assembled it a year ago. Tell us about the list, how it deviates from your ranking of his films overall and where you would put the French dispatch into that list. Happy to first to report. Yes. Number one, 
I wonder if it remembers me. That was my pick when we did that list. So, all right. Glad to see I'm consistent, at least in one way. So Predictable this, <laughs> is, is another way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, something I did for our younger daughter um, because, man, this was the before times, right? We were... Mm-hmm. We, we thought we were going to see the French Dispatch uh, in a year, and we thought, what better way to spend that year than watching his movies? She'd already seen the two stop-motion features. And so, yeah, you you commented that this is, you know, for our family members, it's kind of going to be particular. And that's why yours probably would differ and did differ a little bit. Um, but I started with Moonrise Kingdom just because, you know, that's the age, right? That's the age of the person I was thinking of. That's the age of any viewer that I was thinking of uh, are the characters here, Sam and Susie. And it's an old thing, you know, going back to what Debbie would always tell me about uh, children's books too, is like kids always want to see stories of someone who's just a little bit older than them because they're they're like, it's aspirational um, reading and kind of living vicariously through those those interesting older kids. And so you have a little bit of that going on here in Moonrise Kingdom, at least kids who think they're way older and act way older than maybe they really are. So I think that's the no-brainer start. Uh, Rushmore, I would go with next, as long as, as we've covered on the show, you don't mind um, frequent mentions of hand jobs. Uh, that's, that's something you're going to have to deal with with your children. <laughs> that is true. Um, after that, I went with Bottle Rocket and here started to kind of, you know, um, do a little bit of a chronological exploration, um, because once you kind of get them hooked, I thought with these movies, they can identify with, um, kids, their age, older kids in high school, um, young, you know, young adults at, at, with Bottle Rocket, then moving on a little bit more chronologically. So did Royal Tenenbaums then Life Aquatic, then Darjeeling Limited, and then ended with Grand Budapest for me, because I do think it is, as I've said a couple times now, like French Dispatch, very intricately devised and convoluted, moves quickly, a lot to keep track of. And the last thing I wanted to do was alienate um, my daughter or anyone else who might be potentially interested in Anderson by um, just throwing them into that deep end. So, so that's the order I had. Moonrise Kingdom, Rushmore, Bottle Rocket, Royal Tenenbaums, Life Aquatic, Darjeeling, Grand Budapest. So yeah, again, setting aside his two animated films, mm-hmm. she'd already seen those, assuming, okay. you know, I know a ton of little kids who've seen Fantastic Mr. Fox. So this is like those older kids ready for the next step. Yeah. So French Dispatch, where would you throw that into the mix? Uh, I think I'd put it at the end. I, I yeah. really think that that thing is... You got to build up to that. You, it's a lot to handle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we were joking about this a little bit when this exercise came up on Twitter about the Cone brothers. And it is possible that I just don't understand the assignment. It's also possible that I'm just not as thoughtful as you. Or in the case of Wes Anderson, it's that I was showing it to my kids who are older than eighth grade. Holden was going into college. Sophie was going to be a junior in high school. So maybe I felt like I didn't quite need to build up and could start with some of the the more established masterpieces or acclaimed masterpieces and the only difference again maybe i don't get it but the only difference for me from my ranking that i gave a few moments ago is that i absolutely started with rushmore i felt like my kids needed to start the same way i started with wes anderson rushmore is that film royal tenenbaums then has to be second and you go to moonrise kingdom and grand budapest you go with the four just straight up this is anderson for me at the peak of his powers. Now, I didn't know that actually with Grand Budapest at the time I came up with it, but I knew that 
that's how other people felt about it. So I said, okay, let's put it in the middle here and let's see if you guys react to it the way that a lot of people did when they saw it for the first time. And they did. I would put French Dispatch at seven, just like I had it here. I just think that I want to save the stuff that's maybe a little bit more disappointing for the end. I want to go with the hits. I'm stacking my lineup with all of the sluggers, Josh. I'm not I'm not mixing the speedsters or whatever into the lineup. It's just all home run hitters. Yeah, but your fatal error is you're thinking your kids will feel the same way about these films that you do. They don't yes. have your taste. <laughs> You can, and you can't, and here's, here's the other part, Adam, you can't form their taste to have your taste. Ah, but you see now, now we really discover what's going on. I'm basically imposing my taste on them, aren't I? Well, good luck with that. (laughs) They do, for what it's worth, disagree with me slightly. I think Holden has, and I know we talked about this back then. Sophie is a, Rushmore is number one, like you, for sure. Nice. Holden's a Royal Tenenbaums number one for sure, like his old man. But after that, I think he's got Grand Budapest Hotel. So, okay. Yeah. He but see, I can, knowing Holden, I can that see film. that. I mean, it has, it has a historical element it. to it, right? And, mm-hmm. um, and I can see him appreciating also the intricacies at work yep. there. So, yeah, I, you know, you almost would need a separate list for Holden and, and Sophie, really. So why don't you mm-hmm. get to work on that? And this time, leave your own opinion out of it, Adam. We'll see. We'll see. Maybe, maybe with Quinn and Connor, I will take your advice, Josh, or maybe I will pretend this conversation never happened. Let's get then to that sacred cow review of Rushmore. My second favorite Wes Anderson film, Josh's favorite. A note that back in April 2017, we were just wrapping up our Film Spotting Madness tournament. It was the Pantheon edition. So films that are in the Film Spotting Pantheon plus sacred cows. There are then some references in the review to the final rounds of that tournament. It had The Godfather facing off against Pulp Fiction. Here's that conversation. You remember how I got into this school? Yes. You wrote a play. That's right. Second grade. A little one act about Watergate. And my mother read it and felt I should go to Rushmore. And you read it and you gave me a scholarship, didn't you? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you regret it? No, I don't regret it. But I still might have to expel you. Couldn't. Couldn't we just let me float by for all time's sake? Can't do it, Max. A great scene there between Jason Schwartzman and Brian Cox from Rushmore. And Josh, that bit, a very blatant reference to one of our film spotting madness finalists, the godfather, Tessio Abe Vigoda, talking to Robert Duvall. Did anyone yell that out during your Ebert Interruptus? Oh, there were some Godfather moments that were pointed out. Also, uh, we we noticed right away the scene between Max and Bloom's wife is very conversation-esque, mm-hmm. as well as all the president's men oh, yeah. and even North by Northwest. So yes, the references piled up quickly during Interruptus. Yeah, I swear I saw at least one graduate reference, maybe two, because there's a pool sequence and the scene on the overpass when we see Max running. So certainly plenty of cinematic homages in this film as we have gotten from Anderson throughout his career. In the completely non-existent battle of the directing Andersons, I'm thinking here of P.T. and Wes, a duo who, for whatever it's worth, truly are cinematic contemporaries. They're born one year apart with breakout films, Boogie Nights and Rushmore coming out one year apart. I've always been in the P.T. bunker, while you've always been in the twee and meticulously decorated Wes foxhole. You see what I did there? Everything is in its place here, Adam. (laughs) 
<laughs> now, I'm foregoing the usual long-winded setup here because I'm dying to know how Ebert interrupt us went, and you may need to set that up again briefly for some of our listeners who aren't familiar with it. And specifically, I'm curious what new insights you glean from this unique viewing of the Anderson film you have ranked as your very favorite. Did your frame-by-frame dissection solidify the movie's position at the top of the class? Or, like the movie's passionate but misguided protagonist Max Fisher, is Rushmore due for a must-attend Grover Cleveland-like fall? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yes, it turns out this is a terrible movie, Adam. Oh, you finally <laughs> saw the light. <laughs> Overrated Wes Anderson. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, really, once you get to take apart something, a w- movie as wonderful as this, uh, you just your appreciation just grows. At least that's been my experience. And that's what we've been doing uh, for listeners who don't remember the many, many years Roger Ebert led this session at the Conference on World Affairs. We watched the entire film on Monday, and today is Tuesday, so this afternoon we got through about the first two thirds of it where anyone attending could just shout out stop and we'd pause the DVD and they would make a comment, ask a question, brief discussion, and then we'd move on. So it has been one of the most entertaining film viewing experiences uh, that I've had because the comments have been great so far. Um, People have been mindful of others' time, so Mm -hmm. we haven't really had anyone lording over the microphone. And just to see, uh, you know, this is something I knew, so it's not necessarily a new discovery, but to actually take the time to pause and notice every detail that comes into play, the surprise, surprise, meticulousness that is used by Anderson and his filmmaking team in terms of costuming, production Mm -hmm. design, the use of music to generate so many laughs and so many continuous laughs that bleed into each other and even things that he's you know sometimes derided for say a musical montage and maybe the the accusation is that it's easy to pick a great piece of music and plop it into your movie and you'll generate some energy and some emotion and that's a cheat well when you look at it this closely you understand that Specific songs are picked for specific reasons, Mm -hmm. sometimes to provide that energy, sometimes to be ironic, and also they are almost always perfectly matched with the physical action on the screen. So I'm thinking of Bill Murray's Herman Bloom tossing golf balls into his pool at the very beginning, matching the loping rhythm of the kinks, nothing in the world can stop me worrying about that girl. So Mm -hmm. that sort of matching of sound and imagery. And in their rivalry sequence, which this one includes the Who's a quick one while he's away, it builds up to that moment where Murray's car brakes have been cut by Max. Mm -hmm. And so he slowly comes to a stop, almost running over the groundskeeper, just as that lingering guitar chord of the song comes to... A stop as well. There's a pause. Bloom gives the description of Max to the police. Five foot three, 112 pounds, black hair, glasses, oval face. And then the punchline comes with the final chord of that song and the ironic chorus of You Are Forgiven. So these are the sorts of things, you know, you understand that's happening to you as you're watching the film. But when you do look at it almost frame by frame, uh, the construction, again, no surprise, but sticks out and you can really appreciate the intricacies at work here. Hmm. All I want to know is, did you have to tell anyone, I hear what you're saying, but you're completely wrong? So far, no. We've had, there was, <laughs> there was a little bit of suspicion. I thought we were going to be off to a really bad start because at first someone did ask, I just 
this just doesn't seem realistic to me. <laughs> you <laughs> and don't I say. Thought, oh boy, um, just wait. But I think they made it over that bump and got on board. It was interesting when we showed it yesterday. The vast majority, I, I'm saying probably 95% of the people who attended had not seen the film before. Wow. And yeah, that was a surprise to me. Also made me feel good because of, you know, all the laughter that uh, I heard during the screening meant it was it was still clicking with what was apparently a mostly new crowd. Yeah. There's a lot that you brought up already. Those widescreen frames are so full of detail, which we have come to expect from Anderson. So I'm not surprised that you guys lingered on those. And his use of music maybe is his greatest strength as a filmmaker. You mentioned that Who tune. There's a Rolling Stone song in here too, that Kink song. These are not the most famous songs by these groups. And yet he picks out these deeper cuts and is able to employ them just perfectly. And of course, there is something fun about watching Max Fisher in that sequence, getting off the elevator with that Who song blaring in slow motion, takes his gum uh-huh. out, puts it on the wall for no reason whatsoever <laughs> after the whole B sequence. And there are so many wonderful musical moments like that in this film. I will say one of the surprises for me watching this film, and it was the first time I had seen it since 1998, I believe, there was actually less music than I thought. And there's a lot of it, hmm. but I somehow expected that there would be more of those kind of musical montages. I remembered it that way, and I didn't feel like there were actually as many. It was a more kind of straightforward in some ways and more somber film than hmm. I recall. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and there's also the Mark Mothersbaugh score, of course, which is being used for different purposes. Also for comedy, though. We were looking Mm -hmm. at one that had a heavy jazz drum beat to it um, when Max is having trees chopped down to have the aquarium put in where the baseball field is Mm -hmm. and how that tracking shot is. This is a musical comedy is, is one of the things I realized in the sense that it doesn't have song and dance numbers, but so much of the laughs are are coming in concert with the camera movement and with the imagery. And so though there is great dialogue and some wonderful one-liners, it's such a visually comic film and a musically comic film as well. So I, mm-hmm. and the other thing I will say that stood out to me this time was how good Olivia Williams was. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I, this is, you know, it's in a way a role. She doesn't get much active dialogue. She's often, responding and its reaction shots for these two strange characters who have dropped into her life and she doesn't know quite what to make of them and watching that play on her face in various scenes and even the way she negotiates her relationship with Max um, it's really a, a delicate piece of acting that you know I always thought everyone in the cast was great from the first time I saw the film but looking at it this time again realized uh, how important it was the work that she was doing. He thinks he dumped him because of Edward Appleby. What does that mean? Well, I mean, you live in his room. With all his stuff, it's kind of... I was married to him. I know you were. Although I will say that Edward has more spark and character and imagination in one fingernail than Herman Bloom has in his entire body. One dead fingernail. Right. One dead fingernail. 
I had a similar reaction. I think it is largely a thankless role. She has to be a little bit of a drip boarding our hero in his quest here. And she's a very serious person. Some of the more poignant scenes do involve her, but she grounds it. You talk about reality. I think she grounds the film and its ridiculousness with her frankness and her directness, Mm. not only in what she says to Max, but in the way she says it. So I think her performance is really good. For me, watching this film the second time, I'm going to come off as the curmudgeon. I'm going to be the Sam here, our producer, former co-host, who played the role of Grump a little bit in our Royal Tenenbaum Sacred Cow review from last summer, where he was part of that three-man show. It's going to sound like I dislike this movie more than I did, because I really like the movie, and it is still in second place in my Wes Anderson ranking. But I just don't have the feelings for it, you, and I know Sam, and so many other people do, that love where you love it with the type of zest Max displays when he's talking about Rushmore or when he has an idea for a new club. I'm a little bit more like Herman when he's amused by Max's antics. And there mm-hmm. there are, though, so many wonderful moments and scenes, moments of pathos, moments of comedy. I'm sure we'll touch on some of them in detail. But for whatever reason, and I'm truly curious because I'm not sure I have pinpointed what it is, they just don't strike me with the same frequency or fervor as Tenenbaums. Now, I wonder, of course, if I saw it with a crowd like you did, if that would help maybe bring some of that comedy through. But I'd even say, as great as the musical choices are, and as great as some of the framing is and some of the camera movement is, it's very much a Wes Anderson film stylistically. It's visually not as compelling for me as Tenenbaums is either. And I'm thinking of the use of music and the use of montage as well in that. But As I compare them, Josh, I do it only because Tenenbaums, of course, is the last Anderson movie I watched and loved, but I also know a lot of people regard them as his two best films, and so I was going to dismiss it, and then the more I thought about it, I realized how much crossover there really is. That house at 111 Archer Avenue in Tenenbaums is like Rushmore Academy. You could even argue that Ethelene is sort of the headmistress of these self-contained universes, and Royal and Max are both these selfish callous bastards who devour life and they play Mm. by their own rules and they expect everyone and everything to bend to their wants and desires. Oh, and they deeply love one thing more than themselves. In Max's case, it's first school and then later the Olivia Williams character. And in Royal's case, played by Gene Hackman, of course, it's his family, but they channel that love in ways that are hurtful to those things and those people and almost everyone that surrounds them. They are two characters who are redeemed ultimately and who grow without really sacrificing what defines them. And I guess just as much as I love Schwartzman's performance, and I really do, it's it's really amazing how he walks a line here. And I think my son Holden put it best where he said, yeah, I like him. He's always walking the line between being a genius and a moron. And that's 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 true. And that's that's a high wire act. And he absolutely nails it. But maybe there's just something about the mature version of that character, especially as played by Gene Hackman and the bitter sweetness that surrounds him that speaks to me more than the obnoxious kid who is so impressed with himself in a movie that maybe seems a little impressed with itself as well. I don't know. I'm, I'm coming at this not trying to pick a fight because I'm trying to see it the way you see it and the way Sam sees it, the way so many people do, because I really do like the movie. But I also, as I mentioned, haven't been able to completely pinpoint what keeps me from loving it with that 
Max Fisher-like intensity. Well, and I should say it's not like for me, there's a huge gap between my love for Rushmore or the Royal Tenenbaums. <laughs> if anything, it's just more of a, a personal attachment to what's going on mm-hmm. in Rushmore. It's certainly... You know, Rushmore, we've been talking about this in terms of the references at Interruptus. It's very much feels like a second film. Uh, it's someone who is still possibly shedding influences mm-hmm. on screen. Yep. And so the Royal Tenenbaums is certainly Anderson coming into his full powers. Right. Um, and I think there's something thrilling about seeing that happen. As a huge fan of his, that is what excites me about the Royal Tenenbaums. Why do I enjoy Rushmore a mm-hmm. bit more? Um, I think what Holden said about Max is part of it, though I would say it is somewhat, you know, genius slash moron i would say more it's juvenile slash mature Mm -hmm. and there are specific scenes many of them where max you think is going to pull off this conversation with bloom at the wrestling match where he offers to pay for the popcorn a very adult gesture right yes and it seems to go over well and then he says something like were you in the shit about vietnam Uh which is another attempt at adult social connection but it's completely inappropriate and and so there's something joyous about watching For me, it's why I consider it, you know, if not the best coming of age movie of all time, one of the best and and certainly my personal favorite. There's something about watching a kid on that cusp and constantly going back and forth, stepping on his own toes, having potential um, that I never, ever tire of. And I'm not I'm not one who, you know, I will take Wes Anderson's fussiness. I have not tired of it yet. I understand why some people have. Um, But there is something a little looser about Rushmore compared to the Royal Tenenbaums that I think is a part of my affection for it as well. Um, As much as I admire and appreciate the tightness and everything is really in its place in the Royal Tenenbaums, um, just that little bit of looseness that Rushmore has makes it... um, makes it be have a little more affection for it i guess yeah i wonder if it's something in max's arrogance and his lack of vulnerability which isn't to say it doesn't come through in moments and certainly by the end of the film it does and maybe i feel like i see those those chinks in the armor a little bit more with royal who makes him a more compelling character but again that's what comes with with wisdom and that's the whole point he is a character who is still coming of age and at 15 very much defining himself but i think maybe that's why one of the scenes for me and i'm curious if it was a scene that that stuck out in terms of the ones you talked about at interrupt us that really resonated was the scene at the airport hangar with the kite where he's mm-hmm. with dirk and margaret yang shows up with her remote control airplane it's a scene where we hear max say he's sorry twice, which I'm pretty sure we've never heard him really admit at that point, or at least mean it as genuinely and as warmly as he does there. But I just love the moment. And in some ways, you could argue, why is it even there? It's not a line that's essential to the plot in any way. But when Margaret admits that she cheated on her science experiment, Mm -hmm. it, it seems to me that that's the moment where Max, who up to this point has kind of rejected her, for maybe a variety of reasons, he finally sees that she who comes off as so perfect, in some ways a variation on the character that he's dreaming about seeing himself as at the beginning of the film, maybe not beloved in that way, but the way he goes up to the board and just very flippantly 
solves that incredibly difficult math problem. Margaret's that kind of character, and she's framed at one point at that science experiment in a similar way to when he's celebrated yes. for his intellectual achievement. But he sees in her, I think in that moment, that that she's actually really flawed, and she, like him, is idealistic to a fault. I believe this so much. I can't be wrong. So who cares if I have to fake something to prove it? He's he's an ends justifies the means kind of character. Absolutely. And yeah. that shows that she is too, to an extent. So he feels a genuine connection with her there in that moment. And I think too, just the gesture by Dirk to see if he wants to fly the kite and that moment where he he does come back to life finally after being kicked out of Rushmore and realized that he can still be that person even if he's not in that space that that's where the movie really all does come together for me take dictation please possible candidates for kite flying society david connors rory marshall greg holloway duncan wright margaret yang woody jackson shushan where i'll end up well i think only god really knows that's the tear scene for me. Every mm-hmm. Wes Anderson movie has a tear scene where one just kind of sneaks out. I don't know why. I didn't expect it. The scene hasn't been building up to it. Did you cry in front is. of a crowd, Josh? <laughs> no, I, did, I didn't today. Uh, but but it has happened more than once with that scene. And it's a lot of what you're talking about. It's also what I would call most of Anderson's films have this, the epiphany scene, mm-hmm. um, where the character comes to and it doesn't have to be a major awareness about themselves, even just a minor one. And this is it, as you said, for Max. And it's also, he has opened up himself to others in this scene, Mm -hmm. Margaret and Dirk, but he's learned that that doesn't mean having to completely subsume his own ambitions and interests and personalities. Right. And so that's the trick there's it, that, really. yeah. that is the trick and that's maturation, right? This is, this is where he's learning what it means to be mature. He, he wants to be an adult. He wants to be in charge. And in his rush to do that, he leaves no room for anyone else. But let me, and, let me ask real quick though. Do you think it's possible that Anderson, at least Anderson, the director, I don't know about Anderson, the person, but in his work, he might think that this is what happens in art. This is what can happen in art is that you can create a character who can connect with other people and be part of a community and be part of a society, but still retain all of their individuality. And maybe in real life, that doesn't happen or it doesn't happen certainly as easily. Well, it's interesting to think of in him in terms of being a director, you would say, got to be a control freak, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, look at the way his stamp is on all these movies. But if you look at the credits, you see that how frequently he works with co-writers, how frequently he works with music composers Mm -hmm. and switches up the type of music he uses in his films, the leeway he gives to Bill Murray. And we certainly have to get to Bill Murray before we're done with this conversation. Um, So yeah, he seems to be a director that looks very stringent and like a control freak, but what he produces does seem to come out of community too. And there's a very small detail. There's two details in that kite flying scene I want to mention. The one is you talked about Dirk handing Max the kite string and Max starts saying, take dictation lists, the people who are in the Mm -hmm. kite flying society he wants to found. And he does Schwartzman does this little like zigzag shrug with his shoulder. And it's like, 
he's back. He's got yeah, it back. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yet at the same time, he's including Margaret. He, he invites is. her to be on that. And when we return to that parking lot later, there is the club letter stamp that says Kite Flying Society co-founders. Hmm. And it's just a little detail. Yeah. But it shows you I that, that. He's, Great point. he's given some authorship to, I'm assuming, Dirk as well. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk about Bill Murray. And first, I want to mention that as you're talking about collaborators, Owen Wilson was a co-screenwriter on this film, yes. if I'm remembering correctly, as he That's was right. on his first film, Bottle Rocket, as well. Mm-hmm. But let's talk Murray, because there are so many moments with him that I appreciate. And I'll give you one. It's, again, near the end of the film where Max, for the first time, introduces his father to Herman properly as a barber, right? And he has had this charade up to this point that his father was a neurosurgeon, that he came from, let's say, greater stock. And Murray's reaction, just so subtle, but kind of a, a an inhale where you can tell that there's there's a certain surprise, but more than that, a recognition that Max really is this vulnerable kid. And It's other moments, too. It is, as I said, reacting to the film a little bit like Herman when he responds to something, when he's impressed by something that Max does. There are just wonderful little touches. Every one of those smiles is just a little bit different. He finds variations Mm. on ways to show his appreciation and his, his connection to Max as a character. That said... Let me just throw it out there. What is so transcendent for you and so many other people about this performance? Because I think it's very, very good. But there's a part of me that wonders if it was so groundbreaking at the time in terms of being a paradigm shift for what we expected from a Bill Murray performance, so subdued, so subtle, the the mischievousness, I guess, really only comes out in some of those sly grins and reactions. So he finds a way to sublimate that and yet not ever be boring on screen. But I wonder if over the past 20 years, essentially, we've given him a lot of credit for this movie being the point at which there was that departure. And he started to make really interesting decisions about his characters and the films he chose to do. Is he is he given too much credit for this performance? It sounds like there's no way you're going to say yes. I don't think he's given too much credit. There's so much going on. And the barbershop scene you mentioned, we could start with that. He it's it is the the grin he gives, but it's also the decision that he makes, both as an actor and the character's decision. He's gonna keep the secret. He's not gonna tell Max's dad or even indicate that there's something amiss here, that Max had been lying about his dad's profession, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the character decision, which is interesting. And then the fact that Murray can communicate to us that thought process going on with that little pause, the look that he gives, and then he decides to move forward by just letting Max's lie pass by for Mm -hmm. the good of them all. Um, And I think you see that happening a lot in his scenes. That's the subtlety at play, but you're right. He's not, he's also never boring. You Mm -hmm. know, he's, he's just walking past some little kids playing basketball and he decides to reject one of the kids shots (laughs) for for no apparent reason. Uh, I think there's also, it was a turning point for me, at least in terms of Murray's persona, because there is a newfound vulnerability in this performance that he tapped into that he's carried over since then in a lot of his work, almost all of his work. Mm -hmm. It's not just the vulnerability of standing with the beer belly and the Budweiser shorts on the diving board. You know, when, when Bloom is, is drunk at his kid's birthday party, that's, 
the sort of yes, it's a vulnerable moment for Bloom, but it's also funny, right? Murray is is playing a joke there. It's the vulnerability you see with his bratty kids in other scenes where they get the best of them. Those, yeah. those evil twins. Yeah. Right? Ronnie and Donnie, is that it? <laughs> yeah, I think yeah. so. And, you know, he can't even tell the difference anymore no, at, I love at it. some point. <laughs> yeah. But they get the best of him. And this is a Murray character who there are scenes in this movie where he's the butt of the joke. And if you think about how he came on the screen and and we've talked about some of his early work, he was always the guy that got everybody else in the scene. Mm-hmm. He played the joke on them. Yeah. He was the snarky winner. And this is a straight out loser. We have some affection for him because he's funny, but this is a guy whose life is crumbling. It's falling apart. He kind of wants it to fall apart. Mm-hmm. He, he seems to be so miserable and there is enough here where Murray taps into that as a genuine human emotion beyond the humor that is also at play. So I guess for me, it's it's just one of the first times, haven't seen every single performance Murray has given, and I know he experimented before Rushmore with mm-hmm. things. But for me, it was one of the first times that I saw this other side that he was open to exploring and open to being, you know, the butt of a joke in a scene. Yeah, no, that's definitely all there. Any Closing thoughts. I mean, you've gone through this film now frame by frame. I asked you what insights you gleaned. Were there any nuggets, things you absolutely had no concept of and you came away from this experience having your mind blown a little bit? So it's really the references that are interesting to me because I don't always pick up on those immediately. Mm -hmm. It's just not how my mind works. So it's been great having people in the audience point to like, hey, the the background of that building mirrors the background of North by Northwest where they're at uh, United Nations. And that's exactly what is being, they're going for that sort of intrigue sensibility in that scene. So things like that have been good. Those are minor. Really, the, the mind blowing thing has been that I forced myself, not forced myself, I've always wanted to watch Harold and Maude this week Mm. because the first day that came up as one of the references, the Hal Ashby film, and I just had to admit, you know, people in the audience said, well, you've seen Harold and Maude, right? The shame. The shame. Adam, there were boos. (laughs) Like, I was booed. So I deserved. I can't. Yeah. Cause, cause you've seen every film ever made. Yeah. So of I course. thought, man, I can't go back to these people the next day and, and not have watched Harold and Maude. So you so came I in did, and you said, and I've rated it on Rotten Tomatoes and now I'm the only person who doesn't like it. It's no longer mm. 100%. Right. Um, no, watched it this morning, really enjoyed it. It's delightful. And yes, Rushmore owes so much to it in the relationships at play between a uh, younger man and older woman, mm-hmm. of course. And just the general tone. Um, maybe we'll do a Harold and Maude Sacred Cow at some point and we can get into the differences for me mm-hmm. in terms of calibration, the way that I think Wes Anderson calibrates the tone that Ashby is going for and mostly gets in Harold and Maude. But mm-hmm. certainly I don't see Rushmore as any sort of copy. Um, it's uh, maybe progressing in that really unique tradition that Ashby uh, was a part of earlier. So that's kind of been my mind-blowing experience is finally getting to check Harold and Maude off yeah. the list. Well, I think that is a great candidate for a sacred cow, even though usually we're picking films that we both have seen before and we both saw them some time ago. We can, of course, make exceptions. But I saw Harold and Maude probably for the first time after film spotting started, so post-2005, because, okay. like you, I felt shame. It kept coming up over and over again. And I really liked it, but it never 
really got discussed on the show. I've never reviewed it. I remember certain images and scenes from it, but I wouldn't say vividly. It has been over 10 years now. So I think that's one we definitely need to think about. That's Harold and Maude, which you can find in a variety of places, I'm sure, if you need to see it. Rushmore is currently available to rent or stream on most platforms. Also, some Max Fisher wannabe is probably staging a very authentic production of the film at an exclusive (laughs) private school near you. So look out for that. And I do have to give Sam some credit for a note he had. We were talking earlier today in our Slack, and he mentioned that Schwartzman's so good that when he's in the whole heaven and earth thing at the end, the staged play, he is actually really bad as an actor. So he's really good at playing bad <laughs> in that scene. He is. And and though you will note, there is an improvement in Max's plays from Serpico. Sure. <laughs> how, how professional that is to heaven or hell, which is just another nice twist on his maturation progress. Yeah, that does remind me, though. I do want to quickly point out that one of the things that struck me visually here, one of the motifs we talked about in The Royal Tenenbaums, how there's that constant use of windows where people are often framed by them. They're inside mm-hmm. or outside the house, inside or outside this family unit. Here, there are a ton of curtains, and sometimes those curtains are attached to windows. But sometimes they are just like curtains where Max seems to always be emerging. He's constantly making entrances, which, of course, is so (laughs) fitting because he plays his life like he's a character on stage. There's always a performance element to it. And that's how the movie concludes, too. After the that final shot is framed. Yes. The the curtains close. So there Wes Anderson making that very explicitly clear. You'll find a pair of safety glasses and some earplugs underneath your seats. Please feel free to use them. From April 2017, that was our Sacred Cow review of Rushmore. For more Sacred Cows, including at least one other Anderson, the Royal Tenenbaums, visit filmspotting.net slash lists. That's our show, Josh. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives over at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Filmspotting poll, where we imagine future installments of the MCU directed by Film Spotting Golden Brick winners. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, actually coming this Tuesday, November 2nd, is Electric Jesus, written and directed by Chris White. It's about a Christian rock band in the 80s? It is. Um, I've I've seen this, Adam, and there's a little bit of connection to me and the show itself, so I'm not going to give it a proper review. The writer-director, actually, Chris White, listens to the show. I met him a couple of years ago at the Foot Candle Film Festival, mm-hmm. film spotting listeners involved with that as well. And I know um, a couple of folks who are involved in promoting the movie, but yeah, wanted to just mention that it's going to be available and... I don't know. You were into hair metal in the 80s, Adam. Oh, man. But did did Striper ever cross was, your radar? Was into hair metal? Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. You know, my once apologies. A year, <laughs> once a year, my band still gets together and plays a lot of hair metal. Alas, we have never played a song by Striper, but that doesn't mean I didn't go through a very brief flirtation with Striper. Oh, oh I yeah. love it. I love it. So that was like the Christian hair metal band um, that I'm afraid I did not listen to, but was also familiar with from that time. And this movie is kind of an affectionate riff on that era. It uh, has a little bit of, I would say, a little bit of almost famous in its mix as well. And so if, yeah, if 
if Striper struck a chord with you when you heard that name, you know, and, and images of yeah. men dressed as yellow jackets with big guitars immediately That's came right. to mind, then Electric Jesus is something you might be interested in. Again, it's out on November 2. So let's see. Striper, hair metal, and almost famous. It sounds like you're talking to an audience of me, Josh. In limited release, Antlers. This is from director Scott Cooper, who did Crazy Heart and Black Mask. Carrie Russell plays a teacher who discovers that her troubled student's father harbors a deadly supernatural secret. Jesse Plemons also stars in wide release is the new one from Edgar Wright last night in Soho. That's the film we will talk about next week on the show. And we will get to the sixth film in our Jane Campion overview. It's in the cut. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.